So Matthew chapter 4, we are in verse 12. And we look at the title in my Bible there is Jesus Begins His Ministry. And it says, Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He took that sermon straight out of John the Baptist's mouth. Remember, John the Baptist was preaching up to this point. I want to look with you this morning at some things that are so important because Matthew is a Jewish fellow. And uh, Matthew doesn't give us a lot of details what happened between Jesus' baptism and when John got arrested. Because when we read just Matthew, we think, okay, Jesus got baptized by Matthew. He went into the wilderness. He comes back on the hears that John got arrested. That will be 40 days later. No, no, no. John was about preaching for another year before he got arrested. So Jesus was doing his ministry as well, going around. And we know that John later on said, Hey, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world, when his disciples looked at him. So in Luke, in his gospel, he gives us even more details. In Luke chapter 3, verses 19 to 20, he says, But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. So Roman historians tell us, and it's kind of interesting because it brings us into the 21st century. They tell us that for 20 years Herod was uh, married to an Abian princess. And one of these princes, his wife, went to visit her dad, and, you know, in those days, you didn't just fly somewhere for, you know, a day or two, and then you came back. It took a while. Well, during that time, he thought, it would be good to maybe exchange wives. And so he went after his brother Philip's wife, and that's where Herodias comes in. She also was his niece as well as his sister-in-law. So all kinds of different things going on there. And so by the time... Herod's official wife came back, there was a new woman living in that house in the palace. How about that? John the Baptist preaching, and um, you know, like so many preachers today, he would not just be quiet. He actually, when he had a chance, he talked to Herod and said, hey, what you are doing is against the law of the living God. And how many of you know those leaders who have the power do not like to be confronted? So John's benefit of confronting Herod was going to jail. Jesus heard about it. And Luke fills us in what Jesus was doing as he was preaching. And we go with me quickly to Luke chapter 4. And in verses 14 to 32, we read what's happening. 
And this is where Matthew just summarizes the whole thing. But there's a lot of stuff that went on in the meantime, which we kind of get the background of it. The one thing is, Jesus is going up to Nazareth. That's his hometown. And there he goes into the synagogue like he always has done since he grew up. Everybody knows him in town. And as you probably know, the Sabbath presentation was that you could actually read out of a scroll if the attendant handed a scroll to you. Jesus got the scroll, and here is what he says. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then Luke tells us, he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And everybody who saw Jesus growing up since birth had their eyes fixed on him. These are Jewish people in that synagogue. They know exactly what he just read is the fulfillment of the prophet. What he said was going to happen when the Jews get the Messiah. And they all go, whoops, what did he just do? And then he has the audacity to say this. Oh, by the way, today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. If you ever want to hear a bomb go off, you want to hear it, that was it right there. That set the whole stage. Jesus did this Heard that John the Baptist got arrested for a lot less offensive thing. And what do you think is happening? He knows that Herod will be after him. Why? Because the religious leaders of his days were in cahoot with the Roman political elite. And so when you do these kind of things, they're going to report back to them. And they're going to come after you. Jesus also knew that he had to get first disciples, make disciples, show them how discipling goes. And the time has not come for him yet to go to Jerusalem and to be betrayed and then to hang on a cross and then rise again. So he knew that the time was not there. So he left Nazareth, his own hometown. And he went to Capernaum. Do we have a little map, maybe? Yeah. Let's quickly see where that look, how it looks like. If you look at that map, you can see, you see the Dead Sea on the bottom, you see on top of the chart, the Sea of Galilee, okay? Jesus was down there, by the way, it says Bethany, Jericho, you see that just north of the Dead Sea. And then he walked all the way up to Nazareth, which is on the west side of the Sea of Galilee, on the southwestern side. Then he moved from there to the top north part of the Sea of Galilee, where the city of Capernaum was. So that's where he actually sought refuge and also opened up his headquarters. Everything from here on what Jesus does in the Galilean region comes out of Capernaum. The own people did not like what he said. Why? What he just was reading was a manifesto. You may not look at that. You may say, well, he just quoted the scriptures. Now, let me explain to you in the English language what a manifesto actually is. I took it from the Encyclopedia Britannica. Listen to this. Manifesto is a document publicly declaring the position or program of its issuer. How many would have to say that's what Jesus did? He publicly let it 
to be known. A manifesto advances a set of ideas, opinions or views, but it can also lay out a plan of action. While it can address any topic, it most often concerns art literature, in his particular case, was politics and religion. You say, hold on for a second, Jesus was never involved in politics. What I'm saying is, if you make a spiritual manifesto, you are going to put the political powers on the spot. You cannot have religion, and I'm talking about biblical religion and preaching, without influencing the political spectrum of where it's being preached. It will have an influence. So this is where Jesus is going. Manifestos often mark the adoption of a new vision, approach, program, or genre. They criticize the present state of affairs, but also announce its passing, proclaiming the advent of a new movement or even a new era. How many would have to say, that's exactly what Jesus did? Then he goes, in this sense, manifestos combine a sometimes violent societal critique with an inaugural and inspirational declaration of change. You think that's what Jesus brought? Absolutely. Although manifestos can claim to speak for the majority, they are often authored by a nonconformist minority on the link to the idea of an avant-garde. Avant-garde is a French word. It means somebody who went before in this particular case with Jesus would be John the Baptist. He went to prepare the way, okay? That signals or even leads the way to the future. So John the Baptist laid the path. Here comes Jesus, correct? And opens the scroll and reads the manifesto and said, guys, things are about to change. And for those of you who are still not convinced that it has an impact on the politics, who do you think crucified Jesus? Yeah. So, this is where we can go back to Matthew. This is all what Matthew does not describe. He just goes right into it and says, Oh yeah, Jesus heard that John the Baptist got arrested. He withdrew into Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun. Matthew is pointing out that at the same time as Jesus does that, he also fulfilled prophetic scriptures. See that? From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What triggered it? The reaction of his own people in Nazareth. Let me say it again. The reaction of Jesus' hometown people to the good news and what he did there, that they did not want him to be who he said he is, triggered the new movement. The very thing that goes against us normally, the people which stand us, can actually open the door for the most powerful ministry the people have ever seen. The things which Jesus could have said. Hey, you don't want me? I'm done. I'm going home. No. He went to Capernaum, started the movement. Now look at Matthew. When he says, Jesus came to preach. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There are a lot of discussions about what's the kingdom of God, what's the kingdom of heaven. It's both the same. 
Matthew's Jewish, and as a Jewish person, he normally doesn't want to use the word Yahweh because they were so afraid that they would say it the wrong way or not the right way. So he just says the kingdom of heaven. We know heaven as the one who rules the spiritual realm. So obviously through ruling the spiritual realm, you also rule the physical realm. That has an impact. So, when Jesus comes along and he preaches, we just read that the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And you would say, well, if they have seen a great light, they can from now on see what's going on. So, okay, now they get it. How many of you have ever preached the gospel to somebody or shared with somebody about Jesus and they didn't see the light? But the light was there, but they couldn't see it, you know. People say, well, you know, uh, I have said the truth to you, but it hadn't had an impact. Yes, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. There are a lot of people who don't have ears. They don't, eye, they don't have the eyes to see, okay? So the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What did that meant for the Jewish people? Let me bring it back 2,000 years. The Jewish people sang for 1,000 years, for 1,000 years, psalms. King David was the one who literally put a lot of psalms together, and they were all songs. Do you know what they actually sang almost every Sabbath when they got together? Four psalms. Psalm 96, 97, and 98. They sang that almost every Sabbath. Why? It was proclaiming the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. So when Jesus comes and he tells, hey, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, in the mind they heard the songs which they were singing. I took just a few excerpts out of listen to what they were singing during the Sabbath. 96, verses 1 to 6. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens, splendor and majesty are before him, strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. When they got together, they were singing that every Sabbath. They were looking forward for what has now arrived. When they were singing Psalm 97, verse 1, and then we can jump down to 8 to 12. The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice, let the many coastlands be glad. You go, hold off a second. They were getting together into the synagogue on Sabbath to sing those songs, and yet were under Roman occupation. But they were singing, the Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. They were looking forward, let the many coastlands be glad. Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgment, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Isn't it amazing? In all the psalms they were singing, there's always there's the God who made it all, and there's some other gods which people are running after you see that? And then we're singing that every Sabbath. 
For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Then they were going on. Oh, you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. You see that? They were singing that, singing that. Psalm 98, the first two verses. All sing to the Lord an old song. Always, it always reminds me, people say only the old songs are good. I think they have never read Psalms. There's not a single time in all the 150 Psalms where it says, all oh, let an old song be sung. Nope. All oh, let a new song be sung. Sing a new song. Why? Do you have any idea why? There's nothing wrong with old songs. But how many of you know, if you sing them long enough, you don't think anymore what it says? It's a rot. We just sing. And the Holy Spirit says, hey, you got creativity in your heart. Sing a new song. So you really have to focus on, oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his only arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. They're speaking what is yet to come to the one who is in the midst. Salvation is yet to come. So that proclamation, that manifesto when Jesus opens up the skull, is actually bringing this stuff back into remembrance for them. That's why they were looking at him saying, we're singing, but you're not the one. There's no way. We know you. You could not be the one. But when people respond, it affects everything. This is why Luke said, when the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, Jesus speaking, because he has anointed me. Look at this. To proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. That's spiritual and physical. By the way, when the Jewish people heard proclaiming liberty to the captives, setting the poor free, this is another way of saying jubilee. Jubilee. That's when all the debts have been forgiven. That's when everything is free. People have been set free. The Jewish people directly connected that with Jubilee. They connected that with two incidents. One of them, Exodus, and the other one with Jubilee. They said, the one who comes is going to set us free. It will be something like I would say today, hey guys, do you have any debts to pay? Hey guys, do you have some bills to pay? You don't know how to pay it? Are you guys having some sickness, diseases which the doctors don't have answers for? I tell you what, when he arrives, everything is forgiven. Everything is taken away. Everything is straightened out. Christopher Wright in his book, The Mission of God, he says it this way. He said, the reign of Yahweh, when it would finally come, would mean justice for the oppressed and to over the overthrow of the wicked. How many would have to say, that would be good in this world, wouldn't it? It would set a lot of people free. It would bring true peace to the nations and the abolition of war, the means of war and the training for war. It would put an end to poverty, want and need and provide everyone with economic viability under the metaphor, under his own wine and fig tree. That's what that means. That's a Jewish saying. He goes on to say, 
It would mean satisfying and fulfilling life for human families, safety for children, and fulfillment for the elderly, without danger from enemies, and all of this within a renewed creation, free from harm and threat. It would mean the inversion of the moral values that dominate the current world order. For in the kingdom of God, the upside-down priorities of the Beatitudes operate and the Magnificat is not just wishful thinking. Read, instead of Magnificat, the Manifesto. It's not just wishful thinking. When the kingdom of heaven is at hand and penetrates, it touches every aspect of humanity down here on earth. So, it's not just a spiritual thing, it's a physical as well. So, no wonder Jesus was perceived as a threat. Politically? Absolutely. Spiritually? Yes. Because not just what he said made the leaders nervous, but also his actions. They cross boundaries they have never seen before. How dare would he do these kind of things? He broke taboos and cut through the established social protocol and asked nobody. Why? He's the son of the living God who created all things. Political power. And this is something which we need to understand, my friends as Christians. Political power always depends on the conventional acceptance of the way things are or somebody tells us they should be. Let me say it again. Nobody has an ounce of political power if people do not accept the way things are or the way they say things are supposed to be. You just diminish... You literally sucked the life out of political power. No wonder Jesus was a threat. He did not accept the conventional wisdom. He did not accept the way things were. And he certainly did not preach the way things will be like the Romans or the religious leaders did. He brought something entirely different. That's why I said the guy was a radical. Just to give you a few things, assumptions by which the political and the religious system operated during those days, not unlike today. So you can see a few things. These are all assumptions, and Jesus obviously tackles them. Who was clean and who was unclean? Think about social ramifications. In other words, who is saved, who is not saved? Assumptions. Whom could you touch and whom you made efforts to avoid? Such as people with leprosy. Corpses, dead people, couldn't touch. It's all assumption. Who belonged among the righteous and who did not? The religious leaders made that decision. Assumptions. What you could and could not do on the Sabbath? Assumption. Whom you could eat with and whom you never should. That's how they lived. Who could dispense forgiveness and in what context? Now, you see all these things. Do you think we have some of those still with us? 
So Jesus comes along. Jesus dissolved some of these, abolished some, ignored others, and deliberately challenged a few of them. Now we follow Jesus and see how he does it. And we said, that guy would have never gotten ordained by any denomination. There's no way. You just don't do that. He chose to heal on the Sabbath. Well, don't you have six other days? Why do you have to do it on the Sabbath? That's what the religious leaders said. So he redefined the significance of the Sabbath right there. If they liked it or not. He reached out to those who were excluded by taboos of the society. Women, by the way, they were nothing in that society. Children had nothing to do, nothing to say. The sick, they couldn't go on the Sabbath to church or to the synagogue. Unclean, they could not even live in a city. That would be outside the city. And he even touched dead people and raised them back to life. How dare can you do that? Like the religious people who said, where did you get that authority from? Who do you think you are? He should have said to him, well, try it once and see how well that would have worked. He didn't ask them. He ate with tax collectors. Matthew was one of them. He ate with prostitutes and with those people said, these are sinners, you cannot interact with them. He told stories that gave the official story of Israel an entirely different ending. The Israelites, the religious leaders, they were telling stories how everything is going to work out beautifully for everyone who is Jewish, no matter how they live, no matter what they did. And here he comes along and said, Oh, woe to you, woe to you, you hypocrites. He just changed the story on them. So, I couldn't help it, I thought, wouldn't that be awesome just to take Jesus' manifesto and make it a mission statement? Every church has mission statements, you know. Maybe not, because we are not Jesus. We can't claim what he could say, but we know one thing. He lives in us, and if he pleases to do something like this, he surely can. So J.D. Green, in his book, Christology and Culture Perspective, he says this very interesting about it. He said, as Jesus stood on trial before the highest political religious authority in a Jewish society, he calmly took to himself the identity of Daniel's son of man, whose authority would ultimately overthrow the beast of the oppressive and persecuting powers. Listen to this. He goes, no wonder the chief priest tore his robes and cried blasphemy. It just won't do when the chief priest is cast in the role of a chief beast. He goes on to say, Jesus' radical claims and teachings were not just bursting old wineskins. They were enough to burst some political blood vessels. I think he nailed it. And then Matthew goes on, from that day Jesus began to preach when he said, repent all these things which the religious leaders could not stand. Jesus preached and then did. Wow. So, for the Jewish people to hear those words, it must have been incredible. John MacArthur in his commentary writes, Jesus preached his message with certainty. He knew who he was. He did not come to dispute or argue, but to proclaim. 
to preach. Listen to this. Preaching is the proclamation of certainties, not the suggestions of possibilities. You want to read that one more time? Preaching is the proclamation of certainties, not the suggestion of possibilities. Repent involves a change of opinion, a direction of life itself. To repent is to have a radical change of heart and will, and consequently, of behavior. And we already looked at this, how that works. So when Jesus comes and says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, this is the Holy Spirit is at work here. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Isn't it interesting? Most of what we claim today as proof that the Holy Spirit is empowering us are not mentioned in that manifesto. See, Jesus would have said it this way. Is it easy for you to say your sins are forgiven or rise up, take your bed and go home? Which one is easier? Anyone can claim anything when the Holy Spirit is upon you saying, oh, we can do this and we can do that. That's easy. But then saying to a lame man, get up, roll up your little mat and go home, and then watching it happen, that's an entirely different story. And that's what Jesus brings out. He constantly challenges the people not to yak and talk, but to walk the talk. And he said, I have the authority by the Father given to me. I can do these things. The religious leaders wanted him to get the authority from them. So he was a little bit radical, wasn't he? So, Christopher Wright, at the end of his book, he writes, a change of political, economic, or geographical landscape, a change of government, a change of social status, may all be beneficial in themselves. But they will be of no eternal benefit unless the spiritual goals of Exodus are also met. So to change people's social or economic status, read social warriors, social justice, doing a lot of things for community, without leading them to saving faith and obedience to God and Christ, leads no further than the wilderness or the exile, both places of death. That is my biggest concern for the church in America today. That's the biggest concern I have. We are extremely involved in a lot of things. And we may preach the gospel or say so, but if you are not systematically introducing Jesus to these people in such a way that it challenges them to have a life-changing transformation that only God can bring. You are bringing people from Egypt into the wilderness and let them die there. How do we want to stand before God and give account for that? Jesus did not come to get people out of Egypt 
and bring him into the wilderness and then let him die there. He brings him to encounter God. Listen, in the Exodus, Moses had to bring the people out of Egypt and from the wilderness straight to Mount Sinai. Why? They had to meet their God. They had to meet their God. And right there when they met God, when Moses was up in the mountain, what did they do? Remember, they were freed from slavery. Remember, they were called God's people. And when Moses did not perform time-wise according to their whatever dream they had or wish they had, they started dancing around the old God again while God was watching on top of the mountain. Do you think they got converted at the bottom of the Mount Sinai? No. We all know. Why? They wanted God to set them free from slavery, but not free from what they want to do. And this is what Christopher Wright says. When you and I get involved, where we will do all kinds of social things that is beneficial in themselves, Listen, if you feed people, if you entertain them, if you, whatever you do, it can be beneficial. There are a lot of people who never get out of the house and have joy. Let them have a little joy. But he said, but if they will be of, there will be of no eternal benefit unless the spiritual goals, goals of Exodus are being met, meeting Jesus, meeting God. And he said, so, to change people's social or economic status without leading them to saving faith and obedience. Not just saving faith, obedience to God in Christ leads no further than the wilderness. Jesus did not come to lead us into the wilderness. He came to take us out and to meet God face to face and to see him in action. So when he says, I have been anointed to proclaim good news, so I proclaim the good news. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. But I also open up the blinded eyes. And to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Physically and spiritually. That's the goal of the church. When Jesus is walking by the Sea of Galilee. And is eventually preaching not just to the people but to the 12, which he calls specifically. We're going to look at that next week. You're going to see that he's not just preaching to them. They're living with him. They see him in action. One of the things you and I will learn is when we are close together, Jesus does not just answer our questions or requests. He is the answer. He must be the answer. If this is not our goal, we are just running wild in the wilderness. I'm thinking we're heading in the right direction. And that's the challenge for all of us. So the manifesto is definitely a point to consider. And the point is clear. Change.
change. When such a declaration is made, change is the result. So for all of us sitting here this morning, and those who are listening, when change occurs, how many of you would have to believe that those who know you before the change occurred will notice the change? It becomes visible. It's not hidden in the heart only. It changes the way we live. We don't have to go and preach it. You don't have to go out and say to the people, I became a born-again believer about six years ago. And they go, I'm working with you for 10 years. I've never seen any change. They don't believe you. You know? So no matter how much we preach it, it's not going to make any difference. But if they come to you and say, you know, I know you, I'm working with you for 10 years, and what I observed the last six years defies human logic. What happened? What happened to you? And they say, I'm so glad you asked. This is awesome. Now let me tell you who changed me. Now, now we're talking. That's what Jesus had in his manifesto. I come here to change you. I'm not keeping you where you are. I change you and I change you entirely. Everything around you will change. And if plenty of people are being changed by the power of the living God, you and I don't have to worry about what religion or politics do. Listen. Wherever all these Christians are, they will have an impact on religion and politics. By nature. I always wonder, and I don't want to use the pulpit for political statements, but I always wonder how people can sit on Sunday morning in church and then go and vote for people who want to kill unborn babies. These two don't go together. Or many other things. We don't have to debate it. If God brings you into the world as a woman, as a girl, I don't care what people say, you're going to be a girl for the rest of your life down here on earth. We need to discuss that. I never had many bio biology classes. But nobody has to give me the biology class before I know I'm a man. So when you are doing the biblical thing, do we have to say we are going to influence politics? Absolutely. The way we believe and the way we vote. And we vote God's way. It makes all the difference. And you know what? Don't think that you are going to fare better than Jesus. They're not going to like you. Those who want to live godly, Paul said, they will suffer persecution. Those who want to do it God's way, they're going to have to pay consequences. So may as well swallow it. Go for it. But if the world would see more light, wouldn't you say they would also vote different? They would live different. And the more light we can project, the more people coming into the kingdom of God, the more we can change the things around us we see are not godly. So now, preaching the gospel is not just a matter of having somebody being pushed into the kingdom. It actually affects how we live today. 
It affects everything. See, I just heard a voice. You guys were looking at me like, I don't get it, but a two-year-old gets it. Yeah. It's pretty simple. That's what Matthew is giving to us. He said when Jesus came, he began his ministry. He heard that things are not the way it's supposed to be. He goes to Galilee. He preaches straight out of the Bible and said, from now on, that's what I'm going to live before you. And you and I should do the same. Once we do that, we actually represent him well. Are you for it? Then we can start singing the Psalms like the disciples did, correct? And the Sabbath. Only we're going to do a new song this morning. How about that? Can the worship team come up? We're going to do a new song. Uh, it's not the newest one. It was not composed yesterday. But it does say that we want to bless the Lord, uh, I think, 10,000 times. So you will be here for a long time. So we're going to sing that song. How about that? Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for challenging us just to trust you, to read your word, to live accordingly, and to make a difference wherever we go. May we be encouraged, Lord, by the greatest example you have given us as you walked among us. You feared nobody. You manipulated nobody. You were cheating nobody. But you also did not bow your knee to laws and rules that puts people in bondage. May we learn from that, Lord. May we go out there, proclaim the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and show them that they can be set free, not just getting out of Egypt, but getting out of the wilderness as well. And for it, we thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people can say, Amen. Let's stand to our feet, shall we?